0: In today's episode, we're trying to cram in everything about Alcaptanuria. Hello. Today, I have the great privilege of being joined by Professor Ranganath of the National Alcaptanuria Centre in Liverpool. Uh, Professor Ranganath is a pioneer in his field, and his team have recently published two papers with the journal looking at the experience of their centre over the last 13 years, uh, Professor Ranganath, thank you for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. And now, uh, I'm a paediatrician, so I'm always slightly biased, but I <laughs> think of inherited metabolic diseases as childhood conditions that continue into adulthood. However, alcaptanuria is something that we don't see in our clinics, um, and yet it was literally one of the first ever inborn errors described. I wonder if you could very briefly explain what it is and why it seems like an adult disease.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you rightly say, uh, alkaptonuria is an iconic disease, and this was the one that Sir Archibald Garrett was working on in the late eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds, when he made the family connection and the fact that the inheritance was taking place in this disease for the very first time. And that context is what has given rise to the speciality of inherited metabolic disease. Now, alkaptonuria, of course, is an autosomal recessive condition and uh, as a genetic disorder it's present at birth uh, and of course uh, as a fetus the mother probably metabolizes the hormones that the uh, fetus is producing so it may not be there immediately at birth but a few days after starting uh food intake i uh, think the urine skirt change color uh, so it would be almost impossible to miss that. Even in this day and age of disposable nappies, I think there's it, it a very good opportunity to make the diagnosis of L-capnia right at birth through noticing the color chain. If you notice the black color of the urine and you did a simple homogenic acid in the urine test, you'd make the diagnosis then, and that is probably often made. But then, in the pediatric age group at least, there's not very much in terms of disease consequence other than perhaps kidney stones in some patients uh, and occasional renal failure. So these patients are often not even followed up because they're not very exciting. They don't have lots of clinical features to follow through on, and therefore they're basically lost to follow up. And then they reappear 30, 40 years later with uh, classical features Uh, of uh, irreversible ocnosis and its consequences. One of the difficulties in the UK so far, I'm told it's changing, is the lack of a national register for rare diseases. Uh, That is actually quite an important issue for us.
0: As someone who hosts a familial hypercholesterolemia clinic, that is a sad thing to hear because this is another population of, of patients who have a disease that will not cause them difficulty in childhood, but we know that early intervention can present problems in in adulthood. So certainly there's a plea from you there saying, if, if we're seeing these children, we should be following these children.
1: Yeah, I, I, totally. I agree. I mean, I have done, uh, until recently, adult lip clinics. I think the panels are very similar with uh, alcaptanuria. Uh, I, I think early on, I think the disease is still evolving, but you don't see it. It's very subclinical. And then over time... Uh, There's enough of a buildup. So let me just uh, go back to what is alcapinuria. So alcapinuria is a disorder of the tyrosine pathway, whereby the surplus dietary tyrosine that we consume is not fully metabolized. Uh, Normally, the food that we eat contains uh, sufficient protein to meet the limiting amino acids, which means you get excess amounts of phenyl, and tyrosine you only need about 5% of the amino acids um, tyrosine for good health. So which means you're left with a problem. The 95% surplus has to be somehow dealt with. And normally that's not an issue with an intact tyrosine pathway because the flux through the tyrosine pathway through homogenic acid, to fumarate and the acetoacetate means that the fumarate becomes glucose, the acetate becomes lipid. So all the surplus... Nutrients are reclaimed by the body, if you will. Um, but in, uh, in, in alcaptanuria, of course, there's a block because there's a missing enzyme activity, the homogenesis dioxygenase enzyme. And the uh, lack of this activity means you cannot metabolize homogentisic acid to So As a consequence, you get accumulation of homogentisic acid. A great thing about the human body is that it's very, very good at getting rid of homogenous acid uh, through the kidney. And it does that uh, by glomerular filtration. And it also does that by really efficient, more important tubular secretion. Virtually 80% of the homogenous acid that's got rid of is by secretion, only 20% by glomerular filtration. Uh, What it does uh, is it keeps the level of homogensic acid relatively low. Because the concentration of homogensic acid is more than 1,000 fold higher than in the circulation. Uh, And of course, you will see this in real failure because accumulation of the homogensic acid, because it can't be excreted, really turns the person blue black very quickly. Uh, So, this accumulation of homogensic acid in patients with AKU uh, allows the deposition of this homogensic acid in connective tissue. Through a process called ochronosis, and this ochronosis leads to the formation of a pigment in the tissue. And this pigment is um, alters the properties of the tissue that it finds itself in. For example, if it if it deposits in cartilage, which is a prime target, then the cartilage becomes stiff and breaks down easily. And of course, that is the basic pathophysiology by which the joint cartilage breaks down and causes the arthropathy in these patients. And therefore, this process takes a long time evolving. So before it is seen clinically, if you like, there's a clinical horizon uh, at which suddenly this ocknotic process that's been happening all along becomes visible. Uh, and we see this in, in practice, uh, uh, you know, usually by the age of 30, 40, you can start to see the pigment in the sclera and the conjunctiva of the eye, and you can also start to see the ocnotic pigmentation in, in the years. And these are valuable clues to the presence of Alcaptanuria uh, in someone who turns up later on in life uh, with no diagnosis. So the evolution of the disease is quite slow, and therefore... Uh, patients often turn up later on if uh, um, if they've not been followed up with severe irreversible disease at that point.
0: Now, I mean, there's so much to talk about there. I mean, I wanted to kind of acknowledge that over the last two years, you've been a named author on 11 papers published uh, either with the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease or uh, JIMD Reports. But it's these two papers you published at the end of 2020, where you looked at the patient outcomes for the 87 patients that have been through the National Centre since 2007. What's clear from that is that nitisinone has been a bit of a game changer in the management of AKU. I I wonder if you could briefly say what nitisinone is and and why it helps in this condition. Sure.
1: nitisinone is a life-changing drug. It, It is an enzyme inhibitor. Let me start going back and say this was actually initially developed by ICI as it was then, as a herbicide. Uh, it so happened that somebody was walking in the woods and found the Australian bottlebrush plant under it, nothing grew around the plant, a bit like uh, penicillin and the agar. And then when it was investigated, they found that the bottlebrush plant was secreting a substance called leptospermone into the soil basically poisoning the soil so that nothing could grow around it. And this lectospermone was then taken up by ICI, and nitricidone was semi-synthesized based on that structure. So nitisinone was initially developed as a herbicide, uh, and then as part of the toxicology of this herbicide, they were performing experiments in animals just to see that it was safe before it could be put out into the environment. And when they were doing that, um, they found that the rats developed eye lesions, uh, keratopathy. And then uh, they had to try and explain why this was happening, and they found out that this herbicide caused an inhibition of the tarsine pathway, uh, inhibiting the enzyme hydroxyphenol pyruvate oxygenase. Uh, So it is purely by accident that uh, it was discovered that this proposed herbicide inhibited the enzyme hydroxyphenylpyruvate dioxygenase. At the same time, there was a scientist uh, who was working on HPPD enzyme in Stockholm, Professor Ljungquist, and the ICA then made contact with them and they trialed nicotinamide for the first time in this life-threatening disorder called hereditary type one. Uh, and within 48 hours, this baby was back normal, eating well, the abdominal protrusion declined, the size of the liver decreased, the liver function test improved. Uh, and, and it was a miraculous, uh, in terms of treating, head uh, to type 1, because without nitrosinone, these children often die by the age of one or two years from liver failure and liver cancer. So... In hereditary type 1, nitisnone has been used uh, for more than 30 years. It was This first seminal experiment was in 1991. Since then, uh, there's been marketing authorization granted both in the U.S. and in Europe for treatment of hereditary type 1 with nitisnone, for which it's a standard of care now. In 1998, a group in the NIH led by Bill Goll proposed that based on the mode of action of nictisnone, that it could also work in alcaptanuria. And they followed this up by performing initial studies in three patients and showed that the homogensic acid levels did indeed come down. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine Review article in 2002 as a centenary article for Archibald Garrett as a tribute. Uh, And so they initially tried to develop nitisinone and get it approved through the FDA for alcaptanuria. So they they did a clinical trial in the National Institute of Health um, between 2003 and 2007 uh, in 40 patients. 20 were given nitisinone and 20 were not given nitisinone, And they were looking to see if there was an improvement in the lateral rotation of the hip in those that were given treatment as proof that this would benefit them. And of course they didn't find it because this was just a single endpoint and they didn't find the uh, benefit they were looking for. Uh, And that's where we came in. So we were waiting to use nitidone in patients without capraria. But of course this came as an opportunity
0: for our group because we then said we would look to develop this further. And the two papers I wanted to focus on today are natural history papers. They looked at your experience offering noticinone to 87 patients, both looking at the joint and spine phenotype in the disease and the impact of noticinone therapy on those, but also looking at arthroplasty or joint replacement in patients with spondylarthropathy um, again with sort of alcaptanuria. Could you summarize what you observed from your experience?
1: Can I, can I just tell you briefly about the National Al Centre, what it is? So uh, in 2012, NHS England, highly specialised services, commissioned the Al Centre in Liverpool, in the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. Uh, since 2012, we have seen now 88 patients. At the time of writing the paper, it was 87 patients. Many of them received netizen non therapy patients from England and Scotland are eligible to receive nitestinone for free uh, from the National Archive Centre. But if you're from Wales or Northern Ireland, you're not. So for us, that actually worked to our advantage because one of the difficulties in doing research in a service setting, if you like, is to have a control group. Uh, and that control group uh, was formed by these Welsh patients who were not on nitestinone. So we managed to find a group that were not on nittisnone. And what we found essentially uh, in terms of the uh, joint and spinal disease in the first, one, of the, one of the two papers that you mentioned is that the prevalence of joint disease is enormous in our cohort. Uh, and the way we looked at it was to look at both the symptoms of joint disease and spine disease, which is really pain, and we also looked to see what the objective evidence was for uh, involvement of joints and spine in that cohort of 87 patients. We wanted to have a total body burden idea of what was happening, both in terms of the pain and the objective measurement, and we used the scintigraphic scan, fluoride 18 uh, PET-CT, for the objective measurement of disease burden. So if you look at the pain in the joints, and... We looked at both hips, both knees, both uh, ankles, feet, both shoulders, elbows, and hands. So there were 14 target areas we're looking at. Uh, and uh, we also did the scintigraphic scan in these areas, and we were able to compare the two together. And what we found was there's a very high prevalence of pain uh, in the uh, upper limb proximally and in the lower limb Also proximally. But when we looked at the PET CT scan uptake in the the joints, we found that like the pain, uh, the uptake was the maximum in the proximal joints and less as we went distally. But the situation is completely opposite in the lower limb. Uh, the uptake was maximum in the feed, and it's a complete puzzle for us as to why it is. But more importantly, we found that the prevalence close to 90%, 90 to 100% uh, in our group, with many of our patients having uh, the disease, uh, even when they're very young. So uh, for the first time, we've actually been able to say in any sizable number of patients uh, that the condition takes so fairly young and younger than we thought even before patients complain of symptoms
0: so certainly with the the joint replacement paper i thought it was it was interesting that you didn't see a significant difference between uh joint replacement in the ninticinone group versus the group that wasn't on this anticinone. but you did observe that the arthroplasty rate fell off quite markedly after two, two years on therapy
1: Yeah, I think it's important I make this point because one of the difficulties uh, with arthroplasty paper is that uh, the mean age of our patients uh, is around 50 years of age. Okay, At the age of 50, the majority of them have irreversible damage to the cartilage. The data suggests that once you have the first joint replacement, You get other joint replacements serially, so within 10 years, you could have as many as six or more joints replaced. And the reason for that is there seems to be a threshold of ochronosis that's reached that cannot be reversed, and then that leads progressively to joint failure. And AKU is a systemic disease because homogen acid is in the blood, and it perfuses all the joints everywhere. So, uh, so I think essentially what we're seeing there is that the damage occurs uh, uh, in one joint and then uh, there's a domino effect on other joints. And also, it is too late by then to change that because that uh, the, the cartilage is it's not just the cartilage, the bone underneath the cartilage has gone away, being resolved because due to stress shielding. Uh, and at that state, the disease is not reversible. The only thing that will help at that stage, and of, often in a life-changing fashion, is joint replacement, which is really a good, because the patient who has not been able to walk can, can start walking. But the point is, if you start the patients earlier on in and, and you prevent the deposition of Hobgen's caset as hocknotic pigment in the joint, uh, you could completely prevent this process. Uh, and to some extent, we also saw that, because when you looked at the trend to progression, even in the joints, the progression slowed down after nicticinone. It It didn't quite reach statistical significance like we saw with the homogensic acid levels in the blood or urine coming down. Uh, So uh, I'm optimistic that if we catch these patients reasonably early, then we can make a big difference to these patients' long-term health.
0: I mean, it feels like we've we've come full circle again because we started off talking about these patients being known and then lost to follow up yeah I know that in another paper you studied um it was a comment that people were having symptoms for a decade prior to seeking medical input and then would wait another four years for a diagnosis yeah there's obviously a case here for giving natissanone much younger, yeah we know there's a a group of patients, the tyrosinemia patients, who are having nitisinone from a very young age, so we've obviously got some safety data there. What, what do you see the future holding with regards to uh, perhaps screening or, and, and also uh, early nitisinone therapy? I, I, I think early screening with registration is really
1: crucial. I think it's important that we prevent patients from being lost to follow up after being diagnosed. In terms of when we start treatment as a pediatrician, you will know that one of the difficulties of uh, nicticinone treatment of hereditary in children, in babies, is that some of them do have cognitive impairment. So there is some concern about effects on the developing brain in terms of the high tyrosine. So I think people are not rushing in to give nicticinone to children at present until we're a bit more certain as to what's going on in terms of safety, the cognitive impairment, but that's probably irreversible once it happens. But we do treat patients 16 years and older, even though you could argue the brain is still growing until the age of 25. But we are not seeing any safety concerns at that point. So we have a clinical psychologist who does yearly psychometric, and we have been doing that since 2012. And we have not found any instance of the psychometry scores changing, except in one patient. But she also had other comorbidities. But I won't say anything more about it because it's speculation at the moment, and we will work on it to try and understand the connection. But going back to your question as to when to start treatment, I think even starting at the age of 16 is good. I say that without much evidence of what's happening in terms of the disease in childhood because we really need to know when the disease takes hold in childhood. We did a study called SOFIA, uh, subclinical ochronosis features in alcatinuria as part of the European funded uh, Cure program. And the SOFIA was all about when does ocarinosis actually begin in patients? And we went down as far as age 16 And we found ochronosis at age 16 in the ear and eye. So, therefore, there is a question, is it there even earlier? So, we need to do, if you've got ochronosis and if it's irreversible, then you're making a case to start treating children with telcapitonuria. So, that will be the beginnings of a debate. Uh, And to do that, uh, we are, at the moment, close to beginning. A pediatric study called the Sophia Pediatric, and even though I I have come up with the idea, uh, it is a pediatric group we're studying. So it is being led by uh, Dr. Julian Raymond at Birmingham Children's Hospital, uh, and he's managed to collect patients from Great Roman Street in Manchester and Northern Ireland, and we've got a cohort of about 15 children who we will study carefully to see whether there's any evidence of octodosis at that age. And if we find any evidence of octodosis, and we're doing a lot of other things as well, then it strengthens the case to start thinking about uh, treating children
0: with nitisinone Obviously, you've mentioned some concerns there about nitisinone treatment. You've, your team has also published work on patients developing an acquired tyrosinosis on therapy, and that this is managed through a low tyrosine, low phenylalanine diet. Is that essentially a PKU diet? And what's the reality of that for the patients who are on nitisinone
1: One of the crucial things for us is when we started the National Center, uh, we, we had to ensure that we were safe because we were using a drug off-label. So it was unlicensed. So for us, we were intent on minimizing keratopathy. So treating adult patients without capduria with nitisone is completely different to treating children with HD1, because usually at that age, you also manage the diet really well. So in adult patients, they're used to eating a normal diet. So therefore, uh, what we have to do is have pragmatic thresholds uh, in in terms of the levels of tyrosine that we would accept uh, and manage them so that they don't develop the uh, tyrosine keratopathy. Uh, And to do that, we've got a full-time dietitian who helps us. And I can say since 2012, we've only had three cases of keratopathy in the 87 patients, nearly 240 patient years, which I think is a tribute to the dietetic input that we have. And uh, we are in constant contact with our patients uh, and we are monitoring and advising and therefore managing the tyrosinema issue really well in our patients so we are also doing psychometry, as I said, because we want to confirm that there's no cognitive impairment in our patients. So we are pretty careful in terms of the safety in the National Capsule Centre practice.
0: In terms of how low the protein is in the diet, is it a huge challenge? What we tend to do is uh, if
1: the levels of tyrosine are 500 or below, uh, we accept what they're eating and we generally accept one gram per kilogram body weight of protein in these patients. If the levels are greater than 501, but less than 700, we suggest that they bring it down to 0.9 grams per kilogram body weight. And if it's 701 to 900, we say 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. And if it's more than that, more than 900, then what we then do is consider uh, meal exchanges, tyrosine and phenylalanine free products, uh, in those patients, because it's not like the PKU diet, because you, you just restrict uh, phenylalanine there. Here, we restrict phenylalanine and tyrosine. And we adopt the strategy as partial replacement, maybe one meal or two, depending on the response and the problem with regard to the level of tyrosine in these patients. But Of course, if they do have the keratopathy, then we stop the nitricidone. Uh, And then we wait for two months for the uh, eye to heal. Uh, And then we start them uh, on nicticidone and we look after their diet even more carefully than before. We intensify
0: the dietary restrictions that we ask them to follow. Excellent. It's always encouraging to hear about effective treatment within metabolic conditions. And it sounds like there's going to be lots more work to to come with regards to the the, the severe work and other things. So um, something we can look forward to hearing more about, no doubt. I will say, if you would like to read the natural history study papers, then go to the journal web pages and search for Alcapsanuria and 87 patients. And if you click on Professor Ranganath's name, you'll be able to find a treasure trove of other papers on the subject too. Again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. So it's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for listening. Be sure to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast providers app to make sure you never miss an episode. And I hope you'll join us again next time. Goodbye.